Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jessica Martell about her new book, Farm to Form, Modernist Literature and Ecologies of Food in the British Empire, published in 2020 by University of Nevada Press for their Cultural Ecologies of Food series. Dr. Jessica Martell is Assistant Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Appalachian State University. She's also the co-editor of Modernism and Food Studies, Politics, Aesthetics, and the Avant-Garde from University Press of Florida. Her work has appeared in Modernist Cultures, Journal of Modern Literature, 19th Century Literature, and Gastronomica, as well as six scholarly collections. Martel serves on the executive board of Blue Ridge Women in Agriculture, a woman-led nonprofit helping to build an equitable and sustainable food system in North Carolina high country. Jessica, welcome to the show and congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with some background. So tell us a little bit about your academic journey and how you came to this intersection of literary and food studies. What drew you to the study of food and literature? Actually, it's um, a really puzzling process for me. And when I think back to the earlier parts of this journey and how I ended up here, it's a bit unlikely. I came from a family who loved food, but I didn't really come from strong food traditions. And actually myself, I think I was really uninterested in food for quite a big chunk of my life. Um, But perhaps other people who've gone through the (laughs) taxing experience of graduate school will understand that um, when you're looking for work and trying to support yourself as you, you know, kind of underwrite your own academic career, often people turn to um, hospitality and service industries and the restaurant business. And I really um, became really interested in what people eat and where it comes from. I think through my kind of night nighttime work as I was studying during the day, um, particularly in North Carolina. And um, so, you know, as I started working more and more um, in the food trades, I actually started noticing the presence of food in the books that I was studying and reading. And the first, um, you know, kind of revelatory moment in which I realized that I had something longer that I wanted to dwell on was uh, my first reading of Conrad's uh, Joseph Conrad's novel, The Secret Agent, um, which does appear in in the work that we're talking about today, he has this very strange scene of uh, the assistant commissioner, one of the kind of detectives in who's who's investigating the anarchist underworld in London, um, goes into an Italian restaurant in Soho and describes all of the patrons as ghastly and ghostly. And, um, and it's a very kind of disturbing scene. And of course, as I'm working in restaurants at night, um, suddenly I started my, my understanding of a restaurant became inflected by Conrad's, you know, real kind of trepidation and sense of, of gloominess. And, um, and so I just did a first kind of glance and research project about where Italian restaurants in London kind of originated and came from. And I'll cut this short, but the, <laughs> um, after a, you know, sort of, you know, semester long deep dive into the rabbit holes of ice cream and, you know, <laughs> ice from Norway and like Italian ice cream vendors and then, you know, ethnic food and what that means as, you know, the, the century kind of turns from 19th to 20th. I suddenly realized that I was completely 
obsessed. And it, it became the root of this project that has been really eight years in the making. I kind of joke that it's it, it would be in second grade right now. Um, <laughs> uh, but here we are. And, you know, some of that content is still in the book, but that was really sort of the, the igniting of my passion. That's excellent. Well, I know that you're also the co-editor of a collection of essays called Modernism in Food Studies. Uh, I have an essay in that collection as well. Uh, so maybe take a minute and describe that collection and how it links to this project. Yes. So that collection is actually um, the result of collaboration between myself and 20 other people who did all of the things that I could not do by myself in my monograph in Farm to Form. Farm to Form came first and really, I mean, it's changed so much over time, but it was really, um, you know, kind of, it, it does both testify to hopefully the accomplishments that one person can do while researching over the course of some years. But also really, you know, I do look at it and think, oh, it's so limited. And I just didn't get to do all the things that I wanted to do. And so while I was working on the later drafts of, of Farm to Form, I started, um, you know, because of, I think, how welcoming and how generous um, food studies communities can be, um, working together with lots of different scholars at conferences and um, in different collections and things really led to this kind of group effort that became Modernism and Food Studies, um, this edited collection that is, I think, writes the, you know, sort of, or at least compensates for some of the limitations of a very limited geographical frame that I sort of enacted in Farm to Form. I'm really focusing on um, British and Irish writers. Uh, and so Modernism and Food Studies is actually this, you know, much more dynamic, um, wide-ranging uh, global collection. We have scholars and writers in the collection from, I think it's four different countries. We're covering writers and, and cookbooks and, and artworks from um, nine different countries. And so it has this dizzying scope and scale. And in that way, I think that kind of global reach in that collection adds to its energy and and real um, like freneticism. I think it's such a wonderful volume and speaks so much to the benefits of collaboration in that way. That's a really interesting synergy. I never quite thought about how, you know, there's always that feeling when you're working on a monograph project that there's so much that you're not getting to talk about. How cool would it be to sort of offload that to other people and kind of sell them as a package? <laughs> yeah, it really did feel that way. As soon as I started, we started getting submissions, I thought, oh, that's exactly what I wanted to investigate. Or, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I had suspected about this one region. Um, you know, and so it was really, it was also, you know, deeply gratifying to work on both of them at the same time, because first of all, it gave me a sense of community that modernist food studies is actually a thing. And I know that sounds odd now because it's really a subfield that has kind of taken flight. Um, but it, it didn't feel like it at the time, you know, eight, 10 years ago, it really felt like I was working alone. And, and, um, and I obviously realized once you start collaborating that we were all working alone together. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a real sense of a kind of formation of community of an academic community in that volume too. And so invested with that kind of confidence that what I was investigating by myself was actually real and was being verified by the work of others um, really returned me to the final draft of of the manuscript of Farm to Form with renewed confidence. And I think really deepened um, the sort of commitment that I made to my own argument that I had begun by myself, but was then now sort of invested in this kind of communal uh, endeavor of exposing these new ways of looking at food and literature in the world. Yeah. 
Well, I ask this question often, uh, but we we often in this channel focus on books that are cultural histories of foods. And again, that's my kind of favorite genre for bedtime reading. Uh, And even though your book and the collection both offer a lot of food history for context, uh, literary food studies is a little bit different from those other kind of food studies intersections. So how would you define literary food studies? And, and what do you think the two fields bring together that maybe they can't accomplish apart? Yeah, Carrie, I think that's a wonderful question. And I'm going to attempt an answer, although I really haven't landed on um, the yeah. sort of perfect <laughs> articulation of what it is that we do. But I think that what distinguishes, and I love those cultural histories of food too. I I think that we obviously share that kind of passion for, um, you know, actually understanding the connection between a material product like food and all of its kind of impacts on human systems, whether they're political, economic, social. And so to do, I think a cultural history of food really has that um, wonderful kind of seductive quality that all interdisciplinary endeavors have for me that you can see these kinds of um, insights that come together to really make a richer story of something that seems so simple. But I think to, to attempt an answer, why, why literature? And this is a question that I got so often for years and years was, okay, we understand why food is important, but why is food and literature important? And I think what I've settled on, at least preliminarily, is that literature really allows us that I think on one level, it gives us a richer texture of what the actual cultural realities um, of the impact of those food products are. But I think even more importantly, that it's it, literary food studies, and, and I can say literary, you know, modernist food studies, allows us to shuttle back and forth between all of these different, seemingly disparate facets of human existence. So it connects the cognitive with the physical. Um, it connects the imaginative and the material. And so I think literary food studies has the gift that really uh, makes us understand how inextricable um, material and imaginative processes are. And so to study literature and food, and you can do this in so many different ways. Food is a semiotics. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a metaphor for this. It, you know, so many different volumes of literature and food are now on our shelves. And I feel so lucky to be able to be a literary food scholar at this moment. That is really, I'm, I'm kind of perceiving as an explosion, at least compared to a decade ago. Um, so there's such a different, such a variety of different ways in which you can approach the topic. But for me, it's all about transfiguration. Like, what is it that studying food or or um, interacting with food and food systems? What does that do to the potential and the terrain for literary experimentation? Yeah. So you've already kind of alluded to the the restaurant experiences that you were having that kind of led you to food studies. But what about the specifics of the origins of this book, Farm to Form? What were some of the questions or discoveries that really got you started on this project? The title of the book um, actually came very late in the process. And it was after I had written through the entire kind of argument of the book that I understood what it was that I was really um, like driving my curiosity. And that is the question of form. Um, so farm to form is a pun on farm to fork movements. And that's kind of shorthand for, you know, in the last, um, this kind of new, uh, particularly in new America, but obviously global kind of renaissance in returning to pre-industrial artisanal, um, you know, uh, sort of food sourcing is so much more important, local food movements, slow food movements, that kind of thing. And, but farm to form, um, really indicates the importance of the ways in which material systems like a food system or like food systems, I should say, plural, 
their impact on the ways in which, even if authors are unintending um, to be influenced by them, the inextricable um, place that these material systems have in the creative imagination. I think that my fundamental question driving this book, and it's because I'm such an invested modernist scholar, and modernism just you know, I kind of reduce this to my students as it's weird. And, <laughs> um, and that's what I love about it. But asking where this weirdness comes from, and so many, obviously, there are decades of work, um, kind of approaching that answer from different directions. But for me, I keep thinking, how does the change in the food system change the way in which we understand basic stories that we tell? In other words, so many of our traditional stories and realist forms are based on certain kinds of assumptions um, about structure that we get from nature. And one of the arguments of the book is that industrial food completely and utterly transforms nature. And I'll use that word a little bit in um, kind of air quotes. But, um, but modernism comes about because of these, the, the inability of older forms to represent the world around us. And so I wanted to investigate how food was kind of playing into that, um, that transformation. Yeah, my summary of the book would be that it seems to be contextualizing those modernist texts that I think listeners will probably recognize, like Howard's End, uh, Mrs. Dalloway, Ulysses, right, into a history of an era that recognizes that role of food and agriculture that you've just been talking about, like not just in the social fabric that they're living in and writing about, but also how they're going to be writing, right? How they choose those literary forms. I thought that was a really fascinating argument to make. So food isn't just the content of the novels that you analyze, but as you argue, there are responses to the food system that are reflected in those experiments in form that are the, that hallmark of literary modernism. So maybe a good place to start, and you've done a little bit of this already, is, is defining what and when modernist literature is in the British Empire. Yeah. So um, I think one of the most wonderful things about new modernist studies has been trying to um, expand the definition of modernism. I think the for, for those listeners who might not be as familiar, um, modernism is really a, a term that critics in hindsight applied to an explosion of avant-garde and experimental artistic movements, sort of late, uh, very late 19th century um, sort of the brackets are usually around 1890 to, to sort of through the Second World War. Um, my book takes a little bit of a tighter um, frame. I'm kind of moving from 1890 um, to about 1926 or so with Mrs. Dalloway. But this really um, just explosive time of erosion of realist forms. And this is, I, of course, am speaking in terms of the literary arts. Um, but you can also look in the visual arts as well. And when I teach modernism, I often try and use the visual arts as a way of um, getting students to see the differences and the changes and assumptions about what the rules of making art are. Um, modernism is often characterized as a kind of rupture from the past or rejection of the past. Although um, so many, I think, aspects of my work are actually pointing out continuities between modernism and earlier forms of writing. And that's kind of what, you know, agrarian impulses erupting into these um, modernist foodscape or cityscapes, I should say, in, in the novels, um, that's kind of what it looks like, is that there really is, it, it's sort of, modernism is also a, also a kind of collection of myths um, about this sort of make it new era, um, as to use, to borrow Ezra Pound's famous phrase. Um, but modernist writers and modernist books, for those of you, you know, you might know the names Ulysses and Mrs. Dalloway, those are two of these like big high watermarks. They tend to be characterized by formal experimentation, that's a lot of fragmentation. Um, there are all these different modernist hallmarks. 
uh, that essentially we're trying to, um, you know, as writers and artists, destabilize people's perceptions of the world around them using the forms of the arts to kind of defamiliarize um, of the world. So we have a lot of kind of fragmentation, a lot of interiority in narration. Um, you know, we just have a kind of an experience of disorientation. Modernism is very difficult um, often to read and to, and to teach, at least if you're kind of bracketing it as, and thinking of it in terms of those high modernists, um, those streams of consciousness writers like uh, Wolf and Joyce. Um, of course, the field itself is trying to expand the purviews of modernism and try to, to, you know, actually think about modernism a little bit more broadly. But I would say it's it's this kind of, um, you know, um, disorientation, um, you know, and sort of a change. Like we're we're looking for new ways of representing the the kind of strange new realities of of life in the early twentieth century. Well, each chapter focuses on a particular aspect of the emerging modern food system as reflected in those specific texts. So before we get into those specifics, could you give an overview of the the food system at the moment that modernist writers were reacting to? Um, So maybe what are some of the key aspects of the food system that characterize the era? Right. So modernist writers um, in the, I'm kind of moving from Thomas Hardy in my first chapter through um, James Joyce, but also a little bit later, Virginia Woolf. Um, they are living at a time of um, forces that had been underway for quite a long time. So um, in other words, it's sometimes hard to see when industrial food starts. <laughs> um, but I, what I'm kind of arguing in the book is that we are looking at an era of near completion of the taking over of food chains by industrial forces and industrial logics. Um, and, and we're also, it's a kind of period of great acceleration. So some of the changes that I'm tracing would be, um, what we would recognize as some of the earlier steps towards what we understand now as factory farms. So we're looking at changing, um, a a generally speaking, like self-contained, ecologically contained subsistence way of farming and eating into, um, a system that is based on surplus and profit. That's kind of the very basic, um, but what it looks like can, and actually can be very uneven. It can be, it can look very different in Dorset to, you know, colonies in India or places in Ireland. Um, what you eat in Dorset looks very different from what you're eating in London. So it is a real, I say in the book that what I'm looking at is a kind of non-systemic, but nevertheless coherent set of changes. Um, and so we're looking at kind of the transformation of small scale mixed use farms into monocultures, um, much larger scale productions, much more exploitative expectations for animals, plants, the environment and people. And we're looking at the first real um, kind of massive shifts to outsourcing to colonial territories. And so all of this is happening at the tail end of the Victorian Empire. Obviously, all of these forces have been put into place since the Industrial Revolution, but they really reach a new kind of pitch of intensity, fervor, and almost kind of total um, completion of changing the entire um, food chain of the empire during this time. So what I'm calling imperial foodways is really industrial foodways. And it is a system, um, and this is very important to kind of stress, that it is both the early 20th century food regime is both continuous with the early 21st century food regime, i.e. ours. Um, there are all of our lingering problems of industrial food come from this time. And that's really important. Um, there are also some really important differences. Um, but nevertheless, I think what I'm interested in is the legacies of the system that we still see today, because I, as I say um, in the book, 
we really need to study, I think, earlier reactions to the problems of the first system in order for us to contextualize the food work that we do now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I was struck by the quotation that you come back to often that the modernist era is, quote, a spectacle of lived unevenness. And you brought that word up just a second ago. Uh, Unevenness seems to be exactly what food is particularly good at exposing, right? It seems clear that the, the average British subject was most directly experiencing the projects of imperialism at the table as well. So what are some of those uneven experiences that characterize the modernist era? Yes, there are so many. Um, and again, this is this is a moment in which we have global systems kind of coming into place. So the food chain itself, I mean, it's even even to use the word food chain, I immediately think, oh my gosh, that's such a reduction of all of the things that are happening simultaneously in transport, in labor, in you know, different kinds of fertilizers and inputs, in water politics, in um, you know, colonial politics, in labor exploitation, in environmental change and extraction of resources. So to say food chain is like simplifies it, but it also is a way of kind of containing it so that we can at least start talking about what it is. Um, but I think uh, the the spectacle of lived unevenness is Joe Cleary's term. He's a wonderful modernist critic. Um, and it really was the kind of key phrase in which I started understanding how um, how the, the strangeness of the world is then reflected in all of these strange new literary forms. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the, and, and this we'll get to this a little bit when we go through the chapter sections, but I'd like to kind of use for the purpose of this podcast um, the, the transoceanic uh, meat trades in the British Empire as this kind of potted example where I can go back and say, here's what, let's take meat for a minute, and here's how all of these different and strange experiences of meat changed um, within yeah. a very short period of time. So, um, you know, the spectacle lived on evenness, I think most obviously, and this is what the second half of the book really kind of gets into, is the unevenness of calories available and who, to whom, or whom, which kinds of peoples are denied access to calories. So there's the spectacle of lived unevenness of just basic um, sustenance. And we can see this continuing today in, um, you know, Patel's kind of term of stuff, stuffed and starved syndrome that we are both, like say in, in the US right now, we are the most wealthy nation and, and the most well-fed and even the most kind of you know, we have the public health crisis of obesity and chronic illness and because of our food system, but we also have very, very high um, sort of non-modern um, statistics around nutritional dearth and, and hunger and food insecurity. And this is the legacy of this um, kind of imperial food system that Britain has really brought into the world. And I should probably say that, you know, I'm focusing on the British Empire um, just because you kind of have to focus. But I really do, after all of my research, really think that Britain's um, imperial foodways is really the kind of epitome of um, of the root of the system that we have today. So it really stands out to me as this new creation. And of course, all of the problems that it, that, um, it creates, we, we continue to inherit um, but, you know, you can also see lived like the sort of um, spectacle of unevenness in the way in which the food system itself kind of establishes itself. So in in terms of like the meat trades, we have, um, you know, these lingering pockets in which people still do actually kill cows themselves on their farms, whereas 95% of Britain's population was actually, let's say by 1912, eating frozen meat from Australia, from South America, from New Zealand, Um that there is both, I think, more meat than ever before. And the historian John Burnett um, has wonderful statistics about how the the Victorian urban diet uh, in places like London, but also in Birmingham and Manchester, actually like meat meat consumption, which is such a kind of traditional marker of wealth in a society, 
um, that meat consumption per capita was actually very similar to how it was in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, so we have this explosion of this kind of protein and caloric availability. But then, of course, we have we still have famines. <laughs> and this is Mike Davis's work on um, uh, sort of, you know, late Victorian Holocaust that we have famines in first in Ireland, um, later in, you know, all over India and parts of Asia. And so we have this kind of legacy of great wealth and great, let's say, like meat, like suddenly everyone is eating meat if you live in a certain part of the empire. And then, of course, there's this these also equally kind of great um, famines and and lack of of any kind of sustenance um, to certain targeted uh, members of, of the population, particularly in, in colonial spaces. Right. The first chapter is an analysis of Thomas Hardy's Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Uh, there you sort of refute readings that the novel, uh, as depicting a pre-modern pastoral, instead really suggesting that modernity has already arrived in the Valley of the Great Dairies when the novel begins. Uh, so what's the context of that novel's creation? How are dairies modernizing even in the, the late 19th century? Yeah, so Dorset um, then and now, uh, you know, and, and this is true for a lot of the areas of the British archipelago, um, that it's really a dairy stronghold and the kind of pride and livestock and husbandry um, is really kind of has always defined this region. But what's new in this kind of late Victorian moment and what Thomas Hardy is really the wonderful poet of agricultural modernization in all of his, all of his works, but particularly in these late Wessex novels like Tess of the D'Urbervilles, um, you know, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, just uh, for anyone who hasn't read the novel, is the story of this eponymous dairymaid, Tess, um, who <laughs> essentially has this discovery and revelation that she might be of ancestral um, kind of the aristocracy of the region. And that kind of discovery or unmasking of her past takes her into this tragic um, tale in which she is assaulted and sexually assaulted um, by her cousin, Alec D'Urberville. Um, she sort of retreats from her encounter with the bigger, wider world um, and goes back to her simple roots as a milkmaid in Talbothay's dairy. And the story is really kind of after that, kind of her, mis her attempt to try and, um, in a pastoral interlude, sort of find love and marry and redeem herself. But of course, it's Thomas Hardy and it doesn't work out the way <laughs> that it's supposed to. But her... Um, her status as a, as a milkmaid is actually a really interesting choice. What is happening in Dorset at the time is that it is the first area in rural England to really epitomize the industrial food economy. And I'm also using this term that I've kind of coined in the book called a modernist food economy or modernist ecology is actually, um, I think, maybe the shorter version of that. Um, that essentially what's happening on the ground is that more and more cows are being forced to produce more and more milk to start supplying urban areas like London in particular um, with fresh country milk. Urban dairies in areas like London are being moved and shut down because of hygiene concerns as urbanization kind of takes hold. And so Londoners still want their milk and they're turning to um, increasing demand on these country areas. And the development of the railroad, which is a real kind of fascination for Hardy, is um, you know sort of assisting these trends of surplus uh, milk production. And so there are lots of scenes in the novel in which Tess's work in the dairy is really linked to the railway system. And it's really um, fascinating. It's kind of a fascinating study of the, the sort of hidden side of, of what I think in urban areas might be seen as 
um, of progress, of industrial progress, you know, and surplus, right? We have all of this new wonderful product that to feed more and more people, we're going to save the world and save the poor by making sure that they have fresh, wonderful products like milk. Um, But what Hardy is sort of revealing, and he's this great poet of rural life, is um, really talking or or showing, depicting in the novel, um, the sort of unintended consequences of exceeding the sort of nature, uh, like the kind of farm ecological carrying capacity of these smaller regions that have never really before been tested. And so the argument of the chapter is really like, essentially Hardy turning to a pastoral form. This is this ancient kind of literary um, form in which nature and humans work, um, you know, sort of in harmony. It's really an interval of usually play and healing and idyllic kind of romantic retreat. Um, and Tess, you know, when she moves to Talbothay's dairy and falls in love with Angel Claire, this is the mode that Hardy is summoning. But what I started realizing when I was reading the novel was how very strange the imagery of the pastoral interlude was. Um, just to take a few examples, um, Hardy describes the nature kind of scenery in in this um, in the dairying setting as, you know, kind of um, dripping and um, it's a very strange and kind of grotesque symbolism. Birds are like hatching from their nests and bursting forth and rain is steaming and hot and, um, you know, the milk is kind of oozing out of the cow's udders in this very strange way. And, uh, my, you know, essentially the argument of the chapter is that this, uh, the aesthetic strangeness of Hard- Hardy's pastoral really, I think, suggests the, the sort of coming costs of overtaxing the natural world uh, in the form of cows in this in this particular novel, um, the dangers of, of what's sort of in store for them as more and more kind of pressures to produce surplus are, are being made of them. And there's this very sinister and what should be a very playful romantic idol is really becomes this very sinister and strange um, depiction of nature. And it's a really good example of the ways in which, you know, the, the introduction of an industrial uh, logic of surplus um, heralds these kinds of sinister changes to come as as the you know the landscapes that are so um, beautiful and kind of iconic really become kind of more and more infringed upon and and you know in this path of destruction. Well, the next chapter on E.M. Forrester's Howard's End is one of my favorites. It describes how the novel's treatment of time reflects that unevenness of time in the global food system that's suddenly seasonless, uh, or that can alter the experience of time by freezing and thawing. And, and I thought that was totally fascinating to me. So start by talking a little bit more about those, the, that experience of time. How is Forster's novel experimenting with that experience of the temporal? Yeah. So one of the discoveries that I made as I was putting my chapters together was that Forster was very influenced by Hardy. And, you know, critics have noted this. Um, he was certainly reading um, Hardy and thinking about him when he is writing Howard's End, actually his epitome of beautiful nature and in the English countryside that that the narrator talks about in for uh, in Howard's End is actually the Froom Valley, which is the valley of the Great Dairies where Tess is dairying. So there's this really nice kind of uh, lyrical hinge that that um, you know which Hardy's dairy is actually kind of under a uh, clearly inspiring Forrester's work and his reflection on the on the disappearing countryside. Um, but you know I, I'm I'm sort of using Hardy my analysis of Hardy's novel and um, Forrester's novel Howard's End, which is 1910, so about 20 years later, as these two wonderful kind of proto modernist 
novels that are indicating that things are changing. So we used to have these traditional forms like the pastoral that really explained human labor in nature. And we had modes, um, you know, if you look at, at Forrester's novel, Howard's End is kind of like a country house novel that has these long realist traditions. But Howard's End really um, doesn't work as that kind of genre. But my argument and about Forrester's novel really focuses more on time rather than on genre. So these are just two different ways in which I'm seeing, uh, you know, and, and rendering coherent this kind of trend of away from realist and, and historical um, forms and towards these uh, modernist forms of disorientation. So Forrester's novel, I would call proto-modernist in the sense that it still really has its kind of one foot in the past and one foot in Victorian um, artistic traditions, but it's also looking forward to something new. And one of the ways that he does that is by starting to really play with time. And I know that um, you were curious about maybe what time looks like. And for those of you who uh, maybe don't have that sort of modernist like Bergson 101, I think you can just kind of sum it up by saying one of the features of modernist writing is starting to challenge time as a linear construct and also as a as a construct that is determined by your environment. Um, that time becomes something internal. Forster actually calls this um, life and value versus um, <laughs> life and time. Life and time, he calls a kind of mere successiveness, what we would understand as chronos or chronology. This happens, then this happens, then this happens. But Forrester noticed, this is in his 1927 collection of lectures and um, called Aspects of the Novel. He, he says, you know, it's funny when you look back on your life, you don't say, oh, this happened this hour and then the next hour this happened. You, it, he says it it piles up in these certain moments and then suddenly er erases other things too. He calls that life and value. So we're looking at suddenly time as something that you can actually play with and manipulate. Um, another form for, or, or another name for life and in time and life and value is um, Kairos. It's so funny to think about this in terms of our pandemic right now. I think we're all yeah. living <laughs> in Kairos, <laughs> right? That we are not, we don't have these, the series of discrete moments that structure our lives anymore. Like we're all kind of, out of industrial time at the moment. We're kind of living in this real sort of like, I mean, Forrester calls it porridge. And that's what I keep calling. I have this like porridge sense of time where it's all sort of in the same bowl. Um, but yeah, so in his novel, just to kind of wrap it up here, um, he's looking at the ways in which time has been changed um, and playing with that in his narration, which is full of ellipses and kind of um, shattering interludes. And his narrator is always trying to summon the past at the same time as the present. I call this the use of anachronism, that he is constantly summoning different ages, different historical ages to occupy the same moment. And, um, and so my kind of fundamental argument is that actually he's borrowing um, the the logic of the refrigerated food trades that are starting to freeze time um, and to take us out of like very traditional understandings of season, um, you know, and cyclical understandings of time that we have a kind of a beginning, middle and end. We have, you know, spring, summer, <laughs> fall, winter. Um, suddenly there is no time because if you look at the supermarket, like it's always summer. And so this is a really radical, I think, effect of the modernist food um, sort of ecologies that are that are being imposed by industrialization. And you can really see that happening in Forrester's play with time. And there's some specific meat scenes as well that that kind of bring this to the forefront. Talk a little bit about those. Yeah. So um, I spent a, um, quite a long time in British food archives. And one of the archives that I really um, 
focused on was the Sainsbury Archive at the Museum of London Docklands and just did all of this kind of really granular materialist um, work in looking at uh, the frozen uh, meat trades from London to you know, Australasia. Um, you know, the, the invent of dry refrigeration was a complete and utter radical shift in material food history um, that, you know, heretofore they had been using actual ice blocks um, to try and ship cold things across, you know, um, the equator, for instance. And it's really hard to keep things frozen and chilled when you're, you know, shipping things through the tropics. So the invention of dry refrigeration, which was insulated from the actual climate, um, completely changes um, not only the supply, so Forrester's novel, uh, published in 1910, is at a moment in which um, two historians estimate 95% of the frozen meat ever produced on Earth went to London uh, and went to England. And that is a completely shocking statistic to me, um, that that's how dependent Britain is on imported meats to kind of not only feed their population, but to build their empire um, abroad. And so Forster, um, uh, a lot of this chapter is really a deep dive into um, the archives of grocery stores in London, but also in the Savoy archives. Um, there's a scene staged in the novel at a restaurant called Simpsons in the Strand. And I got to go and have tea and look through their archives as well. And it turns out that Forster was very aware of um, kind of Simpsons and really stages the scene in the novel on purpose. And Simpsons is one of the last restaurants in London to insist that their meat comes from British farms. It's such an interesting moment for us to look back on. Um, if you think about 90% of the meat supply in the world going to Britain, you know, I don't have the exact statistics about how what the percentages are of imported meats in London, but it would have been extraordinarily high. And so to stage a, a scene in a novel at a restaurant that's insisting that their meat is British is a kind of, you know, real signal that Forster is trying to, um, you know, engage with this material history that's going on around him in London as well. And so meat becomes this really interesting signifier. It does a bunch of different things in the novel, but um, it's really the kind of perfect illustration of the changes that are happening. Um, at the time. And Henry and Margaret's lunch in Simpsons, they're eating this big giant kind of, uh, you know, co co like a carved roast of lamb. Um, of course, you know, the archives suggest that all of the lamb coming from, or at least most of the lamb uh, is coming from New Zealand. So the fact that they're eating British lamb is kind of this opting out of what's, you know, sort of the normal system at the moment. Um, and conversely, later in the novel, Leonard Bast and his wife, Jackie, have a dinner of canned tongue, which is clearly a kind of imported product um, and is sort of supposed to be signifying their, you know, kind of impoverished um, experience with the food system. So meat does a whole bunch of different things in the novel, but more, more importantly, you know, on the level of content. But the book is called Farm to Form. And what I'm really interested in is the way in which the actual kind of form of refrigeration really allows Forrester to kind of refrigerate, freeze the past, reanimate it in the present to try and figure out what has been lost. You know, the epigraph of the novel is only connect, um, live in fragments no longer. And I think that's why the, the chapter sort of uses the idea of the food chain that he's constantly searching and the novel itself is constantly searching to connect a past that has been, is, is in the process of being replaced by this new industrial present. And, and refrigeration is kind of the perfect little vehicle to examine the cultural impact of these changes in the uh, political economy. 
Well, the next chapter on Virginia Woolf and rationing in World War I uh, was maybe my second favorite <laughs> of the <laughs> chapters. I was really interested in your argument that even though rationing doesn't explicitly show up in Mrs. Dalloway, it's something that Wolf writes about a lot in letters and diaries, um, and it can clearly influences how that novel is put together. So you argue that the effects of rationing can be felt on that more fundamental level of Wolf's worldview. So talk a little bit about the archive that you were looking at for this part of the project. What was Wolf's wartime experience like? Yeah, so, um, you know, one of, this is to go back to Joe Cleary's argument about um, modernism as as expressing a kind of temporal or, or like a, a spectacle of lived unevenness. Um, other critics have called it an experience of temporal non-simultaneity, which I think is a great phrase for what Forrester is trying to work through um, when he's thinking about how, like where meat comes from. Is it an agrarian product? Is it a farm product? Is it a product of a factory and a clipper ship? Is it British? Is Australia Britain? Um, these kinds of very disorienting questions that the food supply is starting to really introduce into larger cultural frameworks. And so, um, you know, I, I'm at that point, you know, I had written these two chapters. Actually, the Wolf chapter is one of the last ones that I worked on. But as soon as I started reading Mrs. Dalloway again, after working on Forrester in that mode in which I was investigating below the surface of content, I realized that Mrs. Dalloway is also deeply structured by the food um, history and culture and reality around her, um, you know, that on the surface, the novel is about the war, but I really needed to dig into the archive to figure out how food during the war was impacting the kind of what, what I detected as a mysterious absence of um, <laughs> certain features in the novel that I thought I had seen before. And so I, I started reading a lot about Wolf's experience of rationing. And of course, as soon as I started doing that, I needed more background about what eating during the war was like. And so my archival kind of digging around and detective work took me into a lot of archives about um, anxieties over the import economy, which I just kind of described as being really predicating most of Britain's um, food supply. It's incredible. I think that if 95% of the world's meat was exported to Britain um, in 1912, then, you know, by the time you get to June of 1914, as the war is beginning, I think it's something like 60% of the rest of the food economy, and we're not just talking about meat, but everything from like butter and tea and flour and, you know, all of these like staples and luxury goods, you know, and tropical goods like mangoes and pineapples, but also like wheat and therefore bread. Um, even dairy was starting to be something that came from the continent and came from the colonies. And, um, and so I, I just started really understanding the anxiety about disruptions in the food supply as that as being part of the story of industrial food that is that is really kind of the end game is the first world war if britain is an import economy because of industrial food then those german u-boats are really going to change the landscape and the more that i read about wolf and the war the more i realized that there was a food argument to be made here and i suppose that this is a kind of almost became a method as i was reading as as i was writing through the book which is I looked at and stood on the shoulders of many really interesting critics um, who are doing new and fascinating work on modernist writers like Forster and like Wolf. And I thought, how does food actually relate to this? And I was really inspired by Paul St. Namor's book called Tense Future, which talks about Wolf as a war writer, not as a soldier, right? So in other words, not on the level of content. This is not like a war memoir or a book that, about the soldiers in the trenches, but, um, but that her work is actually inflected by her civilian experience of what he 
calls and what others have called total war. In other words, the experience of the war as a non-combatant. Because to say that soldiers are the only ones that participate in war or are sort of governed by war or, or subject to state control because of war is really incomplete. And so um, Wolf, he talks all about Wolf and air raids, and he looks at the way in which the emergency and the tension through the air is saturates her work. And I thought, gosh, you know, that's really fascinating, but he doesn't talk about probably the more common experience of what it's like to be a non-combatant in a state of total war and a state of emergency, which is a scarcity of food. And food rationing starts really in earnest in um you know, sort of the end of 1917 is the worst war for, I mean, sorry, the worst year of the war for German U-boats um, disrupting the supply lines and and uh, really tanking the sort of availability of things on the shelves. And so Wolf's, um, you know, the archive that I really comb through is, is her diary and her letters um, in conjunction with all these other kind of war um, uh, archives as well and rare books collections. But, you know, her her nonfiction, her, I almost call her diary creative nonfiction, um, but also her biography, her letters, um, is really saturated with the realities of rationing and the condition of nervous exhaustion, of uh, complete and utter, um, I think, despair that food rationing actually um, inflicts upon her and her entire household. And my favorite part of the chapter is thinking about her household and her the household of her sister, Vanessa Bell, um, and Vanessa's kind of proto, kind of blended family with Duncan um, Grant and, and Bunny Gar- Garnett. They're all living in Sussex in 1918 and 1919, which are the worst years of kind of food rationing and food scarcity in, in you know, and around London. Um, and they are all participating in these alternative food economies. And I have never heard any mention of Wolf and and her kind of circle as being these, you know, sort of early, like, hippie kind of communal, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, slow food advocates. But here they are, you know, working on fruit farms and foraging for mushrooms. And, you know, it's this whole world of Wolf and her circle that I had never before encountered. And it was kind of ferreting out how food actually is part of, of um you know, her experience of the war that really led to these discoveries. And so when you go back to Mrs. Dalloway, after reading about the fascinating impacts of her own turn um, to a kind of local food, you know, hyper-local subsistence economy in, in Leonard's garden and in Bunny's, you know, foraging, um, you realize that Mrs. Dalloway is really all about the, I think, the absence or the failure of industrial food. And really, I think, becomes, the novel really becomes um, a kind of like, exploration of the industrial food system, which because of its own failures, really sets up um, civilians to be military targets. And I know that sounds a bit dramatic, but if you think about food controls and food rationing as a military strategy, and in fact, William Beveridge, who's the Lord of, I think he's the head of, of the Secretary of the Ministry of Food during the war, he says the greatest accomplishment that the Ministry of Food did was to take millions of people and put them under total state control when it came to food and drink. He says, we've got to treat the civilians like an army because of food rationing. And his simile there, that's a verbatim quote, I think shows the um, what's at stake for industrial food and its failure. When it fails, which clearly, if you predicate your system of plenty on a kind of import economy, if you're an island, um, and you kind of miss those really major potential vulnerabilities and pitfalls, you're really setting your population up, um, even at home in this context, we'll turn to the colony in a minute, but you're setting up your your populace um, 
to become sort of part of a military game that they did not sign up for. And so I think Mrs. Dalloway is really, uh, you know, kind of the basis for a reclamation or, or a, a condemnation of that kind of system. And um, the last part of the chapter really talks about how the food um, that's on the tables in Mrs. Dalloway, which takes place after the war is over. She says, the narrator says over and over again, it's not paid for. Um, it's, this is all, um, it's not paid for. And that was the kind of, you know, almost like, you know, sort of my echoing motto for the whole book is the industrial system is not paid for. Um, and I think Wolf really, you know, depicts the kind of capsize of that erosion of trust um, that is really brought on by the failure of industrial food and its kind of militaristic, um, you know, like horrible catastrophe that happens because of the industrial system. Well, all the chapters touch on empire and that project of imperialism and colonialization. But the next chapter on the works of Joseph Conrad addresses it most directly uh, through the idea of metabolism, which is not just how the, the human body uses calories, but how the empire itself moves energy and distributes those calories. Uh, so what does that metabolism of empire mean in this case? Yeah, that's a great place to actually transition. I, I see, you know, the first three writers of the book, um, Hardy and Forrester and Wolf, are very solidly in that kind of classic British literary canon. And I wanted to describe the modernist ecologies of food created by the industrial imperial system pretty thoroughly before I then turned to the implications for all of the other areas of the British Empire um, that are both, I think, forcibly... Um, dragged into support, supporting this system, but also looking at the impacts of immiseration. Um, as I think uh, I'll quote one food studies scholar here, but that the uneven legacy of calories is in fact, um, you know, the gross uh, legacy of, of the imperial, of the modern imperial system uh, and the European system, right? And that is its kind of grotesque legacy is, um, is immiseration and, and starvation um, through like really extreme famines, like I talk about in the context of Ireland in the last chapter, but also through this kind of um, normalization of scarcity as a part of the modern condition of an otherwise wealthy system. And there's a lot of work in the book that really um, tries to, I think, undermine and demystify this utopian language, which persists in multinational food companies today, especially in the guise of philanthropic capitalism that industrial food can save the world. And for years and years, I've been reading people who are refuting that. And it's fascinating to go back to um, the early 20th century, you know, so seemingly at this peak of empire, of, of imperial power in Britain and Victorian confidence, which of course is blown up by the First World War and then sort of, you know, continues to be strong, but um, is never quite the same form again. But um, the metaphor of metabolism for an industrial system that claims itself as bringing health and prosperity and strength to the world um, is just fundamentally co contradicted by reality <laughs> and the persistent reality of unevenness. And so the word metabolism is great. And I'm using it, um, I'm borrowing it from Marx, actually, but I'm using it to connect the systemic to the somatic and it's really hard to do. And I feel like my fourth chapter is a little bit squirrelier than the others <laughs> because I'm trying so hard to, to account for a whole system, <laughs> a planetary 
system. And I just feel like I haven't quite got it, but um, maybe that'll be my next book. <laughs> um, but metabolism is a great metaphor. It is somatic. It means like how our body processes nutrition and calories. Um, but it also is a kind of wonderful social metaphor. Marx brings it into this kind of social context and economic context. He borrows the term metabolism from um, a chemist called Eustig von Liebig. And he uses it to actually, I know this is kind of maybe seems like a surprise to some people um, if you haven't read all of <laughs> Capital, but Marx is pretty obsessed with British high farming and the inefficiencies of um, of, I mean, British high farming is a weird term, but it kind of can be used often, and I'm using it synonymously as like the kind of proto-industrial monoculture systems. It's a system based on um, sort of extracting as much wealth from the soil as possible by growing as much as possible, and then you have to replenish the soil health by inputs. And so in other words, it's kind of the opposite of like permaculture and systems that seek to kind of, you know, not only stay within ecological carrying capacities, but using biodiversity to kind of reinvest your soil um, with the nutrients uh, without having to turn to external um, inputs. So, you know, we live in a world of synthetic fertilizer, um, you know, which is a, a very, actually, I think a World War I invention of um, synthetic nitrogen as, as being a farming tool after it was, you know, a tool of war. But in Marx's time, it was, uh, he writes about Napoleonic boneyards, um, you know, exhuming the graves of, of soldiers on the continent to, to uh, replenish like nitrogen and phosphorus in British farm, you know, fields. And it's really strange to kind of hear him read, you know, the other source of that kind of fertile fertilizer wealth was guano, which of course is a kind of imperial product from, you know, the Pacific and Conrad writes about it in Lord Jim, these guano mines. Um, but it's a really fascinating uh, kind of focus on <laughs> a system that proclaims to be highly efficient. And the language of efficiency is something that I talk about quite a lot in the book. The language of colonial development, particularly in the sort of late Victorian Edwardian eras, is a language of efficiency, that it's inefficient to leave colonial territories, whether it's Canada or India um, or Ireland or these other places, if we leave them uncultivated, it's a crime against efficiency, which is this kind of divine quality for Victorians, um, because they're undercultivated and therefore not releasing their potential. And there's great work about thermodynamics um, in this era as well. But it's like farming is this wonderful kind of focal point to think about, you know, how the colonial project of industrial food um, sort of get, has it both ways. It wants to unleash the potential for the colony so it can return that prosperity upon them. But actually, it does the exact opposite. And I might get this a little bit wrong, but um, I think it's Alan McDuffie who says, in fact, the reality of that system is exactly the opposite. That when we're talking that, you know, sort of the naturalization of quote unquote market forces in an industrial economy and agriculture is no exception. Um, is sort of the the kind of guide word for Victorian progress and you know sort of um, you know celebration of progress and civilization, but it's actually the exact opposite that's happening, which is that the colonial context, which I look at in chapters four and five, shows that it's the reality is the exact opposite that that colonial extraction in agriculture, in particular, extraction of environmental resources, of labor, of people, um, of animals. It's what we have is actually a system of forced markets, not market forces. And so I really want to look at Conrad's novels, hopefully start to take us into looking at who gets to eat and why, and who doesn't get to eat and why. And there's a lot to be 
I think, looked at from from his novels as a kind of system, a global system, because he luckily is a globetrotter and takes us everywhere. But everywhere you go in Conrad's novels, there's evidence of this unequal kind of um, malfunctioning metabolism, which only feeds some people and doesn't feed others. Yeah, well, and often those people who aren't fed are the the Africans that Conrad encounters. Mm-hmm. And you address in that chapter some of Conrad's racist depictions of Africans, and without really excusing or forgiving him, uh, but you do contextualize those depictions in that larger criticism of imperialism in this metabolist way. So explain a little bit about how that metabolism and that unevenness shows up in Conrad's works. Yeah, Carrie, you're pointing to a really good moment. And since I have worked with Conrad, um, particularly in the context of, I don't know, the last couple of years, I find myself really going back and forth as a teacher and as a scholar. Um, what is it, what, what is the use that I get as, you know, in reading and studying and bringing attention to works that have racist content in them? And I guess I have to continue. I hope, and I'm glad that you have detected that my purpose is absolutely not to redeem a racist writer as some kind of proto, you know, food hero (laughs) in which um, that, because that's just not true. That's an anachronistic mistake. Um, But I think that what the use of those depictions of starving people in places like the Congo in Conrad's novel you know, I'm using it as a tool to continue to dismantle, ultimately, I think, white supremacist um, hero stories about empire as feeding everyone and bringing wealth to the colonies and bringing, you know, prosperity and bringing civilization. Um, I think Conrad's novels, though extraordinarily wrong in their presentation and dehumanization of colonial subjects, nevertheless, I think we can find reasons for for anti-racist um, insights from them. And he, you know, and actually I kind of want to talk a little bit about Lord Jim, but I certainly don't want to dismiss those Africans in, in Heart of Darkness who are sitting there starving, um, just kind of this um, exhausted uh, labor pool um, that's kind of fueling, you know, prosperity elsewhere. Um, it's a really haunting like heart of darkness has always deeply disturbed me. Um, but you know, you can look at it and then look at the ways in which who, who is eating in that novel and who's eating in his other novels and who else is starving in his, in the global system that he sets up. Um, the critic Jesse Oak Taylor talks about Conrad as, uh, attempting, if you look at all of his work, he's attempting to kind of at least through him, we can access an earth system poetics, or in other words, try to comprehend a planetary state um, of affairs. And I think that one of the things that industrial food, one of the reasons for its success and its perpetuation, right, is, is its ability to pitch itself as efficient and as just, um, because of its successes in certain places, but a system that is so large and so inefficient, and let's say so dependent on exhausting, um, guano, people, um, you know, soil health, um, you know, water resources, the exploitative system, uh, or I'll I'll call it maybe a directional system that that takes some things to put them in other places. It's only efficient if you look at it from a global perspective. If you look at the whole system, you suddenly realize it absolutely doesn't work because you take one part of that system out and it all falls apart. 
And we can still see that today. And this has been part of our experience of COVID, right, is, you know, we think of America as being extraordinarily wealthy in terms of food and even protein. But we have had since since March, 1.5 million pigs have been killed because there's no processor. And it's too expensive to keep them for three extra months until processing backlogs um, can clear up. And it's just insane to think that that is, in fact, any kind of system that you can call efficient, because it's mm. not. It's extraordinarily wasteful. And so I think what I'm trying to do with Conrad and to contextualize some of these very disturbing um, parts of the colonial world that he maps for us is that if you try and look at the whole system, you realize just how tenuous it is and how easily it's going to fall apart as soon as one kind of you know distribution channel doesn't work. It, it can't function because it's fundamentally based on faulty logic, the logic of kind of uneven, um, you know, like faulty metabolism. Um, you know, a human body can't can't function with an unhealthy metabolism. And the and the imperial food system just has it's it's just tenuous at best. Um, and the rest of his novels really point out, I think, just the the fragility of the assumptions that go on behind this system. And they're ideological and they're also real too. Well, that same kind of metabolism, I think, influences the next chapter, the last chapter, uh, which focuses on Irish writers, uh, including the journalist and activist George Russell and James Joyce. And though they're both writing through World War I and well after the Great Irish Famine, that experience with the failure of the imperial global food trade looms large in both of those writers' fears about how world war could cause another era of food insecurity and a drain of resources from Ireland to England. So how is food sovereignty presented as a, a political protest or a resistance in this section? Yeah, I think Irish studies is my great passion. And I think I was a Joycean first before anything else, really. And so, um, but he's also very, um, there's a lot going on, <laughs> I guess is the easy <laughs> way to put it. Um, but one of my favorite arguments, I'm completely obsessed with the Irish famine, and I write about it in this in this final chapter of Farm to Form and also in my chapter on Dubliners in Modernism and Food Studies. I think one of the most revelatory moments in my graduate career was reading um, Kevin Whelan and David Lloyd's argument that actually the literature of the famine um, isn't really the kind of stories from the late 19th century that talk about the famine but it's Irish modernism and particularly Joyce is actually the real literature of the famine because they say, and modernism is the stylistic expression of the famine as effect. And this is the same kind of argument that I'm making with um, Mrs. Dalloway, that in fact, it is that sort of the experience of food rationing is not discussed overtly in Mrs. Dalloway, but the silences, the ellipses, the polyvocalism, all of the kind of, you know, concrete characteristics of, of Wolf's style and narrative choices that I talk about in the book really register the the rationing kind of effect um, on the psyche and on the creative mind um, in that novel. And likewise, I think that all of Joyce's writing is inflected by this history of famine and starvation, and depopulation, and and ultimately immiseration of the Irish colony. Um, you know, there's a lot to say about this, and I'll try to be succinct here, but I think what I'm trying to do in this chapter, first of all, it's very hard to say something new about Ulysses. Um, it's one of those novels that has been written about and written about and written about. 
And so I'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of really good um, Joyce scholars. And one of the most intriguing studies of Ulysses to me has been studies of population and studies of Ulysses as a kind of census. Um, And actually, um, so I started there and kind of went backwards and thought about how population is related to food. As you can tell, this is what I do all the time. I'm like, huh, (laughs) population, that's interesting. People have to eat or like how are people fed or what is nutrition or how, how is food quality legislated? And so my brain is always kind of whirring in those directions. And so my argument for Ulysses, um, that's kind of building on population studies uh, in, in Joyce's, you know, sort of the world of critical Joyce studies, is that Joycean modernism, and this is, I would say, a modernism of excess. And anyone who's read Ulysses knows what I'm talking about. It's not only hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, but it is Joyce's attempt to capture the entire universe of one day in one novel. And um, so it is just like the biggest, most gigantic, enormous day that you've ever read about for, you know, for weeks. Um, It takes me forever to read that book. But his modernist aesthetics of excess, I'm arguing, is a kind of resistant stance against the biopolitics that has been created by imperial industrial food. And I have to break that down for you a little bit. But what I'm doing in this chapter is, if that's kind of Joyce's resistant food politics is a kind of excess, um, and a kind of um, rewriting of official narratives of starvation that Britain sort of, you know, always um, you know, imposed upon Ireland and as at least colonial Ireland. Um, then I also think that it's really important to contextualize Joyce's approach to food in conversation with other figures in the Irish literary revival that are that he's in dialogue with, and it's a it's um. It's a slightly unusual pairing, but I wanted to close my book with turning from a very canonical figure like Joyce to a slightly um, more neglected, and I think unjustly neglected, Irish writer in the early 20th century who's writing um, it during the time of the literary revival in this pre-independence um, moment in between, you know, right before the First World War and before Irish independence in 1922, um, uh, George Russell. Russell is a really fascinating figure, and putting him in conversation with Joyce is really my effort to show the colonial space, because this is really my chapter in which I'm illustrating not just colonial um, food politics, but like colonial resistance to those food politics. And so I felt the need to really account for the rich diversity of different possibilities and responses in, you know, to, to this problem of imperial food. Um, and British food imports is kind of what I'm talking about here. So Joyce and Russell take completely different um, at, different approaches to how to resist the kind of in English influence of food imports because, but they're both, to get back to your question, looking at the legacy of the famine as a sign of danger. Um, and it's the First World War that really is a huge danger uh, moment for Russell because he realizes that the same forces, the market, quote unquote, market forces that starved Ireland um, in the mid 19th century are ab- that same logic is absolutely in place and ready to go again in 1917. And it is the logic of exploitation that the colony exists to serve the empire, the metropole, while it, you know, without any sort of sustenance being returned to the colonial space, right? This is the forced market, the directional market, the malfunctioning metabolism. And Russell knows it. And he is trying really hard um, during the war years in particular. He's a journalist and writing all of these editorials in the Irish homestead as a resistant kind of calling for Ireland to close their ports and keep Irish produce in Ireland. 
um, so that England doesn't take their sustenance away from them. And that's sort of his advocacy for an early forms of what we now call food sovereignty, in which people in food producing areas, especially rural areas, can keep their own food <laughs> and they don't have to turn it into money in a marketplace in order to survive because um, it doesn't work. Right. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, and Joyce actually is doing something really different, but uh, they both give these, their, their bodies of work provide this incredible kind of early debates about um, how to deal with industrial food. And, you know, we live in this dialectic in which we're still trying to figure out what to do with it. You know, we celebrate its successes. We also, you know, in this moment, we've never seen this kind of fervent re-entrenching and returning to pre-industrial and artisanal embraces of local food, of slow food, of non-industrial food as well. So all of this is part of the same moment. And we can see um, very similar kinds of debates and, and discussions around industrial food in early 20th century Ireland as well. So kind of uh, to wrap up, tying each of these textual analyses together, what do you think are the most important revelations about the modernist era in Britain that really we can't see without taking into account those links between food and empire and literature? I can't go back to any modernist works without seeing food and empire in them anymore. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's because I think I think what I have attempted to do is retell the story of modernism as a story of nature and culture together. And let me just explain that a little bit more. I think, and I sort of, um, I'm a little cranky about this in both my introduction to Farm to Form and the introduction of modernism and food studies. I think that we, even though new modernist studies has tried so hard to decouple the word modernism from this kind of urban, technical, scientific you know, industrial, um, you know, sort of like mechanical state of culture. And yet I, I really do think that people still, you know, I think there's so much work that has been done to show modernism as more than just a city movement. Um, and nevertheless, like I still feel the need and I feel like my whole <laughs> career has been trying to continue to resist that as putting nature back into modernist works. And there are so many, I think, benefits to doing this. And I'm just going to keep advocating <laughs> um, for this, whatever I write next, which is that modernism is you cannot separate nature and environment from modernism. And food for me is the vehicle of showing the way in which human cultures are deeply imbricated in nature. You know, if you write about food and modernism, if you're writing about Hemingway's oysters or, you know, Gertrude Stein's um, like beef and whatever, uh, I guess she doesn't really eat beef all the time, but she has all kinds of different, if we think about this like urban dining experience as part of the modernist experience, those oysters come from somewhere <laughs> and, you know, and they come from the sea. And it's not, I think that it's just over, it continues to be overlooked, the, the, the imagination of nature that saturates the work of modernism. And that every time you notice um, food on the level of content, there's always a kind of environmental parallel lurking under the surface. Because you can't talk about food without talking about environment or nature. And you can't talk about modernism without talking about these things. Um, and, you know, you can, I just think that it's the most important thing in the world. It's to continue to green modernism, but also to continue to make it an interdisciplinary endeavor. Um, you know, in this book, I'm triangulating literary studies, food studies, and eco-criticism, right? This kind of study of literature and the environment. And for me, I just cannot see the world without those lenses anymore. 
Um, but, you know, I just think that it's really important for us to understand more than anything else that not, modernism is not just skyscrapers and airplanes and the machine gun. Um, it's also all of these other things that are in the book, you know, some, you know, from sheep to ship, essentially. And so that's really what I want to communicate more than anything else to try and complicate that notion of modernist as, you know, somehow alien to nature, to nature or not liking nature, because it's absolutely not true at all. Last question. What are you working on next? (laughs) You know, um, I'm actually really excited about this and I don't know what form it's going to take. So don't quote me. <laughs> but um, I'm working on what I hope will be a book length project about the world of whiskey. I have recently taken a job here at Appalachian State University um, in the Appalachian Mountains in sort of Western North Carolina. And I find myself I'm a new, new affiliate of the Center for Appalachian Studies here. And my love of Irish studies really kind of naturally um, is finding new um, terrain to kind of romp on because of Appalachian Studies. And so I'm, I'm looking at a book-length study of um, whiskey from kind of the British Isles to, to, the, to Appalachia and the U.S. South. So it's going to be a transnational analysis of um, this sort of, you know, I guess I suppose that I see it as more along the lines of a cultural history of whiskey um, in the context of these different interdisciplinary fields. Although, obviously, it, there's going to be lots of literary um, contact points along the way. Um, but it, you know, I just, I'm really fascinated by, um, all of the things that whiskey tends to bring together. Um, it's kind of culture and drinking culture and tradition and history. Um, in the British Isles, whiskey is a resistant imperial drink. It is the way in which people rebel against the crown and later empire. Um, but it also sort of carries that anti-imperial, resistance to um, to Appalachia and the U.S. South. And I think the return of whiskey as a luxury product um, in contemporary times is a really fascinating kind of um, rewriting of, of the history uh, of whiskey as a product that, you know, s- started out as a, a kind of expression of rural power. And it's become this global luxury experience now. And so I'm really interested in, in investigating um, the, the kind of cultural um, acrobatics that whiskey allows us to do in this transatlantic context. And plus, the great thing about whiskey is that it's kind of a man's world. And I really want to <laughs> invade. <Yes. laughs> like I want to look at, you know, the, the kind of, um, I want to really demystify and, and uh, challenge that sort of masculinist bastion of, of culture, and really to figure out what I can find um when i get there (laughs) get in there i'm excited for you (laughs) thank you well today i've been talking to jessica martell about her new book farm to form modernist literature and ecologies of food in the british empire uh, published this year from university of nevada press thank you so much jessica for talking to me today i really appreciate it thank you so much carrie it's been such a pleasure to share my work with y'all 